0: How many of you would say that you're pretty good at resisting things? I've been here 13 years. Now, you're not good at resisting ice cream and cake. That's not what I mean. Uh, I've been here 13 years. I know some of you, many of you very well. By faith, I will take this. Those who I don't know well, you're pretty good at resisting things. I'm good at resisting things. We, uh, we grow up resisting our parents, don't we? Now we resist our kids, don't we? <laughs> the, older, the older we get, the older they get, the, the, the roles are reversed, isn't it? We resist our husbands. We resist our wives. We resist our bosses. We resist the police. Subtly, hopefully, most of the time, we resist the law a lot of times, Uh, By the way, we are not uh, honoring it. We understand what it's like, and we're all pretty good because we have a sinful nature. We're all pretty good at resisting things, aren't we? Well, this evening, primary text is going to be in Mark chapter 10 if you have a Bible. We will use a lot of scriptures, and I hope when you come to church that you do come in with a pen and paper where you can write things down. But we're going to talk about resisting God. Resisting God, and specifically, we're going to talk about resisting the Holy Spirit. Is it possible to resist the Holy Spirit when it comes to salvation? Now, this fall, we have been in a study on the doctrine. Doctrine means the the theology or the understanding of salvation. And I've told you this every week. The, most, the second most important belief system you can have is what you believe about salvation. The first doctrine is what you believe about God. If you don't believe the right things about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're never going to get it right. But after that, you have to be right on this. Heaven and hell are in the balance. Evangelism, missions, everything we do is in the balance on our theology, our understanding about salvation. And we've been looking, we've been looking at Salvation from a biblical view, and we've also been looking at it from a, a view Now, that, of course, they would say this is biblical too, but we've been comparing uh, a, a basically a traditional Baptist type view of salvation with an old theology that's starting to rise back up, called Calvinism. Calvinism uh, started by John Calvin. Uh, In the 1500s, he was a preacher, a lawyer, a theologian. And, and, And to sum it up real quick, it's a system real heavy on predestination. And I don't believe that that is the belief that most Baptists have. I've been asked, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about it because, one, we're looking at the Bible. Two, the most important subject after understanding God is understanding salvation. And Calvinism may be the thing in the next 20 years that splits the Southern Baptist Convention. That churches either go for it or against it. That's how big a deal it is to understand this. And heaven and hell are in the balance, okay? So let's begin with this. Is God's call to save you irresistible? When God decides to save you or to save someone you know this evening who is not a Christian, or God, I believe, God wants to save everybody, can that be resisted? Can people say no to that? Now, I'll give you a quick reminder. Put, put on the screen our tulip. Calvinism is built on a, on a five-point system from the flower tulip, not poinsettia. That would be much more confusing, wouldn't it? Tulip, it begins with total depravity. Now, the way a Calvinist defines that is a person is so sinful, they can't do anything. Uh, Unconditional election, basically, this is, uh, this is kind of a crude way of thinking about it, but I've actually heard some say this. Unconditional election is God puts his hand in the hopper and pulls out names of people to be saved. There's, there's, you're elected, and it has nothing to do with anything except God's random choice. Limited atonement that God only died for the chosen, and tonight, irresistible grace that, that can a person resist the Holy Spirit... And P, the perseverance of the saints, primarily once saved, always saved, that we're going to look at next. It'll probably be in January before we get to that. But the subject this evening, can we resist the Holy Spirit? Let's begin with this. Calvinism says it is irresistible. Calvinism says that the Holy Spirit's call is irresistible. That's that I there. That's irresistible grace. This is complicated, so I'm going to try to make it simple. And again, I'm I'm not trying to do anything but represent their system the way that I understand it. Not to slander it, not to uh, belittle it, but to represent it as I would want mine represented fairly. God gives two calls to people to be saved. One is the general call for salvation that you hear from the preacher or the teacher that says, Come follow Jesus. Everybody gets that call, but there's a second call, an inward call that only the elect get. In other words, two people could be in church together their whole life. They hear the gospel preached, the outward call, but only Brandon, not Justin, gets the inward call, and only he can be saved. The problem with that is I don't find an inward and outward call in the Bible. If you look real hard, I don't think you will find it there either. John Piper, who is kind of the daddy of modern-day Calvinism, Talking about irresistible grace, he said, The Holy Spirit can overcome all resistance. Well, amen. He can, can't he? And he makes his influence for the chosen irresistible. In other words, the Holy Spirit, I would agree, the Holy Spirit is God. He can do anything. Amen? Amen. And if he wanted to make his influence irresistible, he could. The question for eternity is, does he? It's basically saying this, and and again, I want to be uh, as honest and sweet and gracious as I represent this, but that if you're going to be saved, God has chosen you randomly from the hopper, unconditional election, and when it's time, it is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to pull on your heart. And, and, and the word force or drag is, is, would not be a correct understanding, in my opinion, but that you are going to be saved. It's irresistible. Just like when Bluebell hits the shelves on the 21st, amen, it will be irresistible. The Holy Spirit's call, that was a bad place for a funny joke, but the Holy Spirit's call is you can't do anything with it. You. You've got to respond to it. Now, one place they get this is from John six forty four. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. R.C. Sproul, who is also a very a popular advocate for Calvinism, says the, the verb draw there literally means uh, that it is irresistible, that God compels, he draws in a way that you cannot say no to. Now, orthodox Christianity and orthodox means mainstream. All mainstream Christians would say you can't be saved unless the Holy Spirit draws you, Okay. The the question is does that verb mean forcibly draw? Well, if it does, let's look at John 12:32. John 12:32 says, "But I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself." Well, if that's true, what that means is when Jesus was crucified, and because of the cross, all people will be saved. Forcibly. That's called universalism. An orthodox, mainstream Calvinist or non-Calvinist would say universalism, everyone being saved, is not biblical. Do you agree with that? We wish everyone was, but everyone is not going to be. Here's the best understanding of that word draw. It doesn't mean to draw by force. It means to attract. It means to draw to a certain point. It, It means to help bring someone to a certain place. It's not a forcible dragging someone to do something. Folks, the term irresistible grace is never found in the Bible. Now, I want to say this. Once saved, always saved. not found in the Bible. Now, I believe it's true, but that phrase is not found in the Bible. But see, here, here's the difference in Calvinism and probably what most of us grew up with. If you're not a Baptist, that's great. We're glad you're here. If you are a Baptist, Baptist, the, the cool thing about us, we've got a lot of things wrong, but some of the things we've gotten right is our theology has not been a systematic, organized theology. It's been a biblical theology. Do you see the difference? See, I want my theology built on the Bible, not on a system that a man has created. And, and, and Calvinism, see, what happens, total depravity, I can't do anything, so God has to do everything. God unconditionally pulls my name out of the hopper. He only died for the, the, the chosen. The grace, the pull, has to be all of God. It's logical. Does that make sense? It's not in the Bible, but it's logical. So let me give you an other, other option. What seems to be the plain teaching of Scripture? What seems to be... The plain teaching of Scripture. Here's where we get to our wonderful story. Mark chapter 10. Let's start in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is such a great story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of these gospel writers saw the significance of this story. It says a, a man ran up to Jesus. Now, here's a, here's a cool thought. In this day and age, a man did not run in public unless his robe was on fire, okay? It wasn't dignified. You just didn't do it. So here is a guy, and, and we're going to find out in a minute he's a rich person, which that ups the ante a little bit too. It's going to up it a lot. He runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees in front of Jesus. We are told in Matthew that he is a young man. He is a young ruler. Someone said, we love you. Half the world's under 30 and the other half of us are doing everything we can to look and act like we are under 30. <laughs> would you agree with that? He's a rich, young ruler. He's a rich, young, powerful man. In Luke chapter 18, it talks about him being a ruler. Now, what does that mean? It means he's probably a leader in his community and probably in his synagogue. Hey, this guy has it all, friends. Think about this. This dude is young. He's got hair. He's got hair. He's got money. He's got power. We're going to see in a minute he's good. He's noble. He's religious, but something's missing in his heart. you got a hole in your heart only God can fill. And you're trying to fill it with alcohol, drugs, girlfriends, boyfriends, TV, or donuts. It'll never work. (laughs) It'll never work. And look at that last phrase, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get the best life here and a life when I die? And look at that, what must I do? When he asked that... He was saying that repeatedly. We don't get that in the English, but he was. It's like he fell on his knees, and he was saying, Please, what, tell me, what must I do? What must I do? The Holy Spirit was working on this dude. He, I would love to see someone run down the aisle on in the invitation, wouldn't you? And come to one of us and say, What must I do to give a million dollars to this church? Write the check. no. I just say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to get right with God? I mean, this is awesome. Now, let's look at the rest of the story, 18 through 22. Why do you call me good, Jesus? Is Jesus is playing word games with him. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is God. I think he's kind of filling him out. You know who I am? You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. You notice there's a couple he left out, by the way. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, a Jewish boy at 13 went through bar mitzvah. They still do. And at that point, they become a man. So he may have been saying, since I, my bar mitzvah or even before my bar mitzvah, Jesus, I obey the word of God. I obey it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Listen, Jesus loves everybody. What this means, and this is the power here, Jesus was Felt affection towards this person. Human human. Jesus not only loved him like, I'm going to die for you. But Jesus looked at him like, man, I like this guy. But he does not dumb down the call. One thing you like, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Sad there means like storm clouds, gloomy. It's literally the picture of shock when Jesus told him this. I mean, if Jesus would have said, give me, you know, give me whatever, how much money? Let's say $500,000 if that guy had that. He would have written the check. That's what Jesus said. We're going to look at this in a moment. Call to salvation is not the call to give up all your money. The call to salvation is to give up, put everything in your life behind Jesus Christ. Money was this guy's God. Notice Jesus didn't ask him, do you not covet? He didn't ask him that. That was going to be the heart of it in just a moment. And it says this guy went away sad. Folks, I want to tell you, to say this guy wasn't under conviction, you're silly. You're reading a different Bible. To say this guy wasn't sincere, you would be insincere. This guy was was being pulled by God. This guy ran to Jesus. This guy was as sincere, and I believe under conviction as you can be, and he walked away from it. Let me give you another really interesting, verse 23 through 25. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Jesus was sad and shocked how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Then the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you don't get anything else, get this tonight. If salvation was unconditional and irresistible, your wealth would not matter at all. Amen? Amen. Listen to me. If God is reaching in a hopper and pulling out names, your wealth doesn't matter at all. If it's irresistible, your pocketbook does not matter at all. Rich, poor, white, black, green, purple, and everybody in between because it's unconditional. It's not based on anything. But Jesus said his wealth did matter. And it does matter. And you say, why does it matter? It's because oftentimes wealth pulls people away from God. You pr- some of you are praying to win the lottery. That would be the worst thing that could happen to you. Some, some of you. some of you are praying that you'd get a lot more money. It, that might be okay. But if you start chasing it, you're going you're to fall away from God. And Jesus wasn't saying this to condemn rich people. He was saying this to say that the more money you get, if you're not careful, you will get too comfortable, too easy. Forget your need for God, and you will leave God behind. You might be saved, but your kids and grandkids are going to die and go to hell because they're going to never know they have a need for God. The eye of the needle, what was that? That's debated a lot of times. Well, there was a place in the, the Great Wall of Jerusalem where a camel could get on its knees, and it could go through this part of the gate at Jerusalem. Very hard, but possible. But but most scholars think that Jesus was literally using an illustration of the largest animal they knew, a camel, and a sewing needle. And he's saying, getting saved on your own is about as likely as a camel fitting through the eye of a sewing needle. It's impossible. But Jesus doesn't finish there. Let's read on verse 26 and 27. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked in, and with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. With God, the rich, the poor, and everybody else, whosoever can be saved. Isn't that great? Now, the last part of this is important, too. Peter said, we have left everything to follow you. Hold that there just a second. Peter didn't say, Jesus, you unconditionally chose us. Peter didn't say, one day you were preaching, Jesus, and I don't know what happened. I just found myself in a trance walking down the aisle. Jesus called, and Peter answered. By faith, Peter answered. Go to verse 29 through 30. I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sister, mother, father, children, fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them, ooh-hoo, persecutions. But in the age to come, eternal life. Isn't that awesome? You see... I'm going to be honest with you. I think this passage right here blows away irresistible grace. D. James Kennedy was a famous preacher and a, and a good preacher. He's a Calvinist. D. James Kennedy was asked about this passage. Here's what he said Oh, I believe the guy got saved later on. In theological circles, we call that baloney. <laughs> That's called iso-Jesus. If you don't know what that means, iso-Jesus means you look at the text and you read into it what you want it to say. Here's why I don't believe the guy got saved. It made Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I believe if he would have been saved, we would have heard about it later on. I really do. I hope he got saved. But to say that this guy got saved when there's zero biblical evidence is saying what you want the Bible to say instead of letting it say what it says here. Charles Swindoll quoted him a few weeks ago. He's a great preacher. I want to quote him again because I think what he says is good. He says, Irresistible grace is just the logical conclusion of where you go with Calvinism. He said, It's just not found in the Bible. If you were taking notes, write these scriptures down. These are just a few of many. Exodus 32, 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Wonder if that was a Baptist church. You think it was? I'm teasing. Gosh, it's Christmas jokes, right? Do you notice a little a, a resistance there? Do you see that? Let's go to let's go to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you Rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke. Are you following me? Matthew 23 37 38. O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick under her wings. But, read that with me, you were not willing. I love and I hate this verse because it's so sad. Luke nineteen forty one shows us the heart of Jesus as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. They had rejected him. I'm really not sure he would have wept if he would have known they were not chosen. One last one, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. It says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. Read that last part. I think, to me, the overwhelming biblical evidence is is that God has made us free and we can resist the Holy Spirit. Now, where are you resisting the Holy Spirit tonight? If we can, my bet is some of us are. Let's start with us Christians first. As a Christian, if you're a Christian... In your obedience as a Christian, where are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Uh, If you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 is a resist the Holy Spirit verse. Do not quench the Spirit of God. To quench the Spirit of God is to disobey God. It's to get out of His will. It's to not follow Him. It's to resist the Holy Spirit. Listen, I want to tell you, as I know this personally, as a Christian, I struggle with resisting the Holy Spirit a lot. Because that's part of part of our challenge and I'm sad to say I know I can resist him as a Christian and it always works out terrible when I do but I can I want to ask you this evening where are you resisting the Holy Spirit is there, is there a sin in your life a secret sin that nobody knows about at least right now that you got covered up that you're playing with maybe it's not a secret sin maybe it's just something out, out in front of everybody maybe it's bitterness you're holding on to something that you you just won't forgive and let it go. Doesn't mean you have to be reconciled. That takes two. Forgiveness means you let it go. Maybe it's with your money, like the rich young ruler. He was keeping that was keeping him from salvation. Sometimes that keeps us from God and a fullness of the Holy Spirit. We won't tithe, we won't give as we should. Where this evening, if you're honest with yourself, is God prodding you and you're saying no let me tell you here's a scary thing for the lost and the saved person we can say so no so much that voice gets awful low where are you resisting the Holy Spirit tonight you will not win that battle but here's the second thing maybe tonight some of you are resisting him with salvation we got a lot of people here good crowd There's somebody in this room tonight who's never been saved. And you may have sat through a thousand sermons and you felt the Holy Spirit tug on your heart, pull on your spirit, and you've resisted. You've said no. You've held on to the pew. You've made excuses. You said, what are people going to think? Whatever, whatever. And you've said no. I won't look at the story again, but there was one thing that was keeping this guy from salvation as far as we know. He's in hell today because money was his God. I don't know if it's money with you. I know this. When you get saved, you've got to come to Jesus and say, here's everything I am. I'm laying it out. I'm yours. That's what faith in Christ. It's a surrender to Christ. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's family for you. Years ago, 1983, I was riding around with one of my dear friends. Shared Christ with him for four hours that close man he was sweating bullets don't you like it when you're witnessing they start sweating literally in an air conditioned car isn't that great and you're saying oh holy spirit turn up the heat turn up the heat then you, then you, you reach over and you turn it up to about 90 in July and, but here's what he said he said I can't he said my, my family my family will make fun of me they'll reject me and he was absolutely right but I want to tell you they would have still loved him. He wasn't going to get beheaded. He wasn't going to get thrown out of the family. I've seen people say no because their girlfriend or their boyfriend. What would they think? I've I've seen people say no because what's my husband or wife going to think? Listen, don't let anything keep you from resisting the Holy Spirit this evening. Max Licato is a great writer, a great speaker. I know a little bit about him. I think he's a great guy. Max Cato made a great statement in one of his books. He said, tonight, if you're a thousand feet from God, God will walk 999 to you. But you can and you must take that next step. We're going to give our invitation in just a moment. Maybe tonight you've never taken that initial step of salvation. When we stand, would you come down the aisle tonight, not resist the Spirit anymore, and surrender your heart to it? It's eternal. Maybe you're here tonight and you'd like to join our church family. We would love for you to do that. One way you can do that when we stand, you can slip out and come and join us tonight. Maybe tonight you're here as a Christian and the Holy Spirit, I hope, is speaking to your heart. And maybe it'll be where you're standing. Maybe it's at the altar on your knees or praying with a minister. There's something you need to surrender to Jesus. You need to say to God, I'm resisting no more, Lord. I'm going to let it go and I'm going to follow you with all my heart. Let's stand and let's say yes.